Hello, my name is Declan Deneen, and welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Chris Swellentrop, uh, who is a wonderful writer um well a journalist this is something um when i was thinking about like doing the intro um when you think of it see that this whole thing is going to come off as uh as mean and i don't mean it to i hope i hope it's it's not considered mean this is where i'm regretting decided never to edit these but when you think of people who write for video game sites you know a, a lot of the the big most popular video game sites they would generally be like I would class them more as as enthusiast writers. They're not really journalists. They don't do. I mean, some do, but but many of them don't really do the job that a journalist would do in terms of like you know, investigating, finding sources, verifying claims, all this sort of stuff. Um, see, that sounds mean. I don't mean it mean. I love I love enthusiast press. Um, but Chris is is a, a bona fide journalist. Uh, he spent years working. Um, for Slate and the New York Times, as the, he was the political editor, editor, in fact, of the New York Times blog and covered a lot of the elections from 2000 onwards. And he's always been interested in video games, but as you'll hear in, in the show, like over the past couple of years, he's kind of been working much more writing about video games for everyone from Rolling Stone to uh, the New York Times, like Slate, Kotaku, like all over the place. And he's a, a just a lovely guy and very interesting, and I think I think you'll enjoy. It. I I definitely uh, enjoyed chatting with Chris. I hope everybody uh, enjoyed the last episode, the Glass Games autosave. Um, do check out if you haven't. I've got another one um, in the works. This one is more about a kind of. Well, I'll just tell you, it's about um, games as performance. I've spoken to a bunch of different actors and performers uh, who love games and how. They kind of I, this come up on the show before with like I spoke to Keith uh, Keith Stewart about this a bit and William Pugh who both had backgrounds in performance. Um, but yeah, so that that's that's coming along nicely. Um, I I'm not going to talk about politics um, because we've all probably had more than enough uh, politics over the last few days. But I let's just say I'm I'm going to remain hopeful and optimistic and. Uh, Hope we can uh, make the best of the situations that we're we're presented with, and try not to hate each other and scapegoat and stuff. Um, yeah, so let's let's not talk about that. Let's talk about me. <laughs> no, no, let's talk about the show. Um, again, like it's come to the point where I say this so much that it's like, oh God, give it a rest. But but if you do enjoy the show then rating and reviewing it on iTunes is is a, is a really big deal and really appreciated i've i've received loads of really nice messages from people and people have said stuff on forums i've had messages through twitter about how much they're enjoying the show and it's just the nicest kindest things uh, in the world um and <laughs> not to say don't do that but if you put those things on iTunes it would both make me feel good i would definitely see them and also it would encourage more people to to listen to the show which is always a, a good thing um you could do both you know it's easy copy and paste on a computer 
Um, if you don't enjoy the show, then what on earth are you doing uh, listening right now? Um, okay, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email the show. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at Checkpoint Show on Twitter or Checkpoints Podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Uh, you can follow me too if you like. It's at Declan Deneen, D-E-C-L-A-N-D-I-N-E-N. Um, always keen to hear from people just any thoughts or ideas they have about the show little stories if anyone's got any like general like just little personal stories about how a game has shaped their life and what way, do send that in you know i'm hoping to kind of piece those together into a, a special episode too um so yeah this is a great chat with chris i hope you uh, hope you really enjoy it i'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest until then let's get on with the show That's my latest pro tip. This is great. I'm wildly unprepared, but I'm talking about myself. So how hard can it be? Absolutely. No, that is that is perfect. Um, so we'll do like the the formal introduction. So so Chris, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. It's a real pleasure to talk. Um, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Sure. I am Chris Solentrop. I am a writer. I, <laughs> I say I am a writer on digital culture and national affairs in the United States, which, which is everything because national <laughs> affairs is everything and digital culture is everything. Pretty um, much. In, the wor- in the world of video games, um, uh, I'm a contributing video game critic for the New York Times where I write a lot. Um, I also have written about games for Rolling Stone, for Wired, for Slate. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting people. I recently wrote something for the Wall Street Journal. Um, for the Wilson Quarterly, um, I've do, you know I've been doing this on a freelance basis for for uh, for the better part of ten years, uh, and uh, it's always been a sort of side gig for me. But over the past oh four or five years, it's become you know increasingly more and more what I do. And I'm also a host of my own podcast, Shall We Play a Game? And um, you know I wrote for Kotaku for for a while. Yeah, you know, always getting the plugs for the podcast. Um, <laughs> That's the key, right? That's that is, the only what, reason yeah. I'm here. No, I'm, I'm, honored, I'm honored to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I find this really interesting. Like the, as you say, you know, you've been working as a, a journalist for many years now, and the the games portion has kind of overtaken in the past uh, few years. But like previous to that, I mean, it's difficult. I, I don't want to say this without sounding insulting and i don't mean it in an insulting way but you seem to have transitioned from kind of quote-unquote serious journalism to i'm just you know i'm just going to write about video games like the the transition from that because you used to be like um you were the the political editor for the new york times magazine is that right when like years ago like and to sort of say oh and now i do i write for kotaku not 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 there's anything against kotaku at all um but like how did that shift come about um so i started out my career as an editorial assistant in the Washington Bureau of Slate Magazine, the online magazine that yeah. uh, was then owned by Microsoft. Um, and, you know, my aspiration was always to be a political writer and a political reporter. Um, and so, you know, I wrote a sort of proto blog for the 2000 presidential campaign between Bush and Gore. Uh, I covered the 2004 presidential campaign as a traveling correspondent for Slate, uh, uh, covering, you know, Howard Dean and John Kerry and George W. Bush and all that. Um, I, uh, I eventually started a, a job, uh, uh, as a, 
as a blogger for the New York Times opinion page, writing a column called The Opinionator. Uh, that transitioned into a job as a staff editor for the op-ed page of the Times, assigning and editing uh, contributions from outside contributors. So, so during the 2008 campaign, I largely, um, um, you know, I was sort of, the, I mean, I wasn't the editor of the whole page, but I was tasked with, you know, seeking out uh, and finding uh, outside contributors, for everyone from political staffers to average citizens, yeah. uh, writing about about that election. Uh, I then uh, moved to the magazine, where for two and a half years I was the political editor, writing, you know, editing stories by. Um, you know, Matt By, Peter Baker, Mark Leibovich, these are all high profile uh, American political journalists. Um, but during that whole time, I also had a little <laughs> side gig as a games writer uh, and games reporter. Um, part of that is my training at Slate. Uh, Slate is a place that that rewards uh, the enthusiasms of its staffers. Um, I wrote a weekly column um, called assessment for a while, which was a sort of mini profile of people in the, of a figure in the news. Okay. Um, it was, it was, it was basically, it's basically a ripoff of a thing you see in British newspapers, this sort of, um, pro argumentative profile that's based more on the public record of a person, uh, than it is on, you know, having a, having a cup of coffee with them yeah. and having a conversation with them. Um, and we would sometimes shake it up by doing a concept or a thing. Uh, and there was one week when I just uh, didn't know what I was going to write about. It was probably in August uh, when there's never a lot going on, it seems. And there's a lot of people in, on vacation in Washington. <laughs> and um, my editor, Jacob Weisberg, um, said, well, there's got to be something that you're interested in that's coming out this week. And I said, well, you know, there's this video game, Madden NFL, that I'm really into that you know, back then was, you know, hugely popular, still hugely popular, but mm -hmm. it was even more popular. And um, uh, it's sort of it's sort of the arbiter of cool in the world of sports in a way that Nike used to be. Athletes want to be on the cover. They play it. Um, and he was like, well, that's weird and interesting. You should write about that. <laughs> so I wrote about that. And that was sort of my first real video game piece. And. I started editing technology for the site for a while, um, and I would sort of try to get uh, video game pieces in. Um, I edited Clive Thompson, who wrote a, about a monthly column for us for a while. Um, and then when I became a freelance writer, um, the new technology editor at Slate just asked me if, if I wanted to start contributing. So I said, sure. And so I periodically would just, would just do that as just sort of an enthusiasm Thing. Oh, I, here's a game I'm interested in. Here's something I want to play. Yeah. Uh, you know, here, boy, I'd love to review Red Dead Redemption for you. Uh, that sort of thing. Do you and, think that's? Do you, I don't mean to interrupt, but do you think there yeah. there's an element of that that's because because it was online? Like as you said, you know, you started with, with Slate, which is like one of the very early kind of big sort of online news sites, basically. So do you think do you think if if you had been in a more traditional print media, I mean, you obviously. Well, obviously, but I don't think you'd have had those same freedoms to be like, oh, we need to like, because it's a blog, you know, it's not not taken as seriously. This is this is my 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 struggle with not trying to sound um, like I'm demeaning anything because it's yeah. still in a kind of transition phase. But but certainly, like, do you think that you would have had you would have done those same things had it just been traditional just print? 
No, I mean, it's something pretty peculiar to the culture of Slate, uh, more so than the culture of, of the Internet, at least Slate as it was constructed uh, back then. Yeah. Um, we, um, on the one hand, it was it was a blessing because at, at a young age I was given this column uh, and allowed to write about, you know, a whole wide range of things um, and uh, in a sort of dilettantish way <laughs> and, and sort of say, oh, yeah, as if I know anything about the new foreign minister of China, you know, the new Chinese premier or something. But but that's the job as a journalist. Absolutely. Yeah. To dive in and figure it out and do do the best you can. And so um, and there definitely was an atmosphere of experiment uh, an atmosphere of, um, well, let's just try things. Let's do things. Let's see what works. Let's see what forms work on the internet. Um, and there was an interest in, interest in interactive culture generally. And my interest in video games as a writer um, partly comes from the fact that I've been playing them my whole life, um, but it also comes from my interest in in interactive culture. The whole reason I wanted to write online in the you know in 1999 and 2000, the reason I went to to work for Slate instead of, um, you know, a newspaper, even though I've worked at newspapers before and after, was because uh, the internet and interactive culture and all that was so exciting. And so to me, they're they're just inextricably intertwined. Look, my phone's ringing. Hold on just a second. No problem. All right. Now it's not. Anyway, to me, they're just <laughs> inextricably intertwined. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I, I mean, I, I bring up the, the blog thing because... Um, like for for me, like I mean, I've always played video games. I've always loved video games. And uh, when I I got online re- relatively early, sort of mid nineties, basically, I got my first computer. And I think the the, the sort of person that that loves video games is is definitely going to be the sort of person that is online earlier. I mean, a lot of the 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 big sites I remember from when I was a kid are the video game sites, like various video game. Um, like blogs and, and emulation and forums especially were, were a huge deal because video games up until that point had been a relatively solitary thing. They weren't, you know, not everyone I knew played games. It was just me and a few friends. So to find suddenly this world of people that all loved games, it was, it was a huge thing. And I think that's true. And and like any, any kind of um, genre entertainment, you know, any, anything that would have classically been kind of the, the nerdy kid on their own in their bedroom. Um, the internet suddenly made huge communities around, like before the kind of the quote-unquote normal sort of mainstream society got online as well. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when video games were too nerdy for Wired, right? You know, which is which is sort of insane to yes. think about. But um, you know, but when when Wired was a, I mean, Wired has always had coverage of video games. There was a great piece about Mist in uh, the first iteration of Wired in the 90s. Um, but as as video games have mainstreamed, their coverage has really uh, increased. On the other hand, I'd say there's this, um, one of the reasons, um, one of the things I try to fight against is this way that video games, that the, the conversation around video games in quote-unquote mainstream media is just sort of amnesiac and recursive. Like the Times, the New York Times, where I write a lot and worked for five or six years, um, has been writing about video games since the 1970s. The New York Times had has had regular people writing, you know, criticism of video games uh, since 1998. There's some uh, really great stuff, actually. I, I think it was um, Simon Parkin, actually, former guest on the show. He 
I'm sure he tweeted a, a link to like an old 80s analysis and I cannot remember the name for the life of me, but it was brilliant, like really just so insightful and incisive and, and with a real love and critical eye. Like it, it was amazing. To, and to think this is like, you know, almost 30 years ago, basically. That's right. And we sort of return to the same questions. Well, what does it mean to be interactive? Are these things sports? Are they games? Are they a type of moving images? Um, how should we understand them? How should we talk about them? And um, a lot of that stuff was great then, is great now, um, but it occasionally frustrates me that it's so quickly forgotten. On the other hand, you know, <laughs> that's what daily newspaper work is, right? Yes. Like it's, it's fish wrap. So, so it goes. <laughs> So, uh, well, Chris, let, let's go back. You know, you, you've had this love of games your entire life. So if you can remember, uh, what was your very first experience of a video game? I'm pretty sure it was the Atari 2600. It must have been Combat, which is the, the pack-in game for the 2600. We, I would have, we grew up, I grew, I was born in Louisiana. Okay. Uh, moved, moved to El Paso, Texas before, before I even turned one. Lived there until I was five. Right before my sixth birthday, uh, which is in February, in January of 1981, we moved to Kansas City, over to Overland Park, Kansas, to the suburbs of Kansas City, which is where I grew up in the middle of the United States. And um, we got for Christmas that year uh, an Atari. And we moved into a duplex uh, in, in suburban Kansas City while we waited for our new house to be built. Uh, and... I was a kindergartner, so that meant um, I went to school sort of half day, and I was home in the afternoons, and my earliest video game memories are playing Space Invaders, the Atari port of Space Invaders, which is not a well-regarded no. port, but, but, but how, I didn't know, and um, I just played... I just played that game all the time. I could I, I could flip the score on that game. It makes me sound like I had some sort of OCD, but I and maybe I did. I don't know, but I loved playing that game. There, I'm sure this didn't happen often, but there's a story in my family about my mom wanting me to wanting to go to the store, and me refusing to go as a you know either early six year old or late five year old and just and her just leaving me al home alone playing this game. <laughs> and, um, you know, nowadays they'd call child protective services. But but that, you know, I, I, she knew but once I was they saw your score, then they'd be like, well, clearly <laughs> she this knew kid I knows what he's doing. <laughs> she knew I wasn't going anywhere. She knew I was just going to sit and, wa and play that game for, you know, for the 30 minutes or 45 minutes or however, however long she was going to be gone. I was not going to be doing anything else. And um and we just and in some sense, the crash of 1983, uh, when the video game industry in the United States just cratered, yeah. was a, was amazing for me as a video game player because we would go to the local toy store, and there would be all these games for for a dollar, you know. Um, so we had you know, we didn't have that many games, but I have a box in my office here of of the old Atari games we used to have, and we still you kept them all. Yeah, we, so I have twenty or thirty games. You know, we pl I um, I played a lot of ET, which people you know now think is terrible. I played a lot of that Pac Man port. I loved Raiders of the Lost Ark. I loved Yars Revenge. I actually loved the games of Howard Scott Warshaw, which I'd ever, without ever knowing who Howard Scott Warshaw was, who was one of the early designers. Um, I loved Missile Command. I loved Frogger. There was a Popeye game. Um, I think I said Yars Revenge. I mean, I yeah. just played. Um, uh, you know, 
And there were tons of bad games. There was a really bad game called Towering Inferno. Um, you know, and I remember even movie tie-ins are, are yes, really good. Early like. movie tie-ins. <laughs> Although that Raiders game is pretty good. And then, um, you know, I even remember playing games at friends' houses that we didn't have, like River Raid that I always wanted to have. And so um, I do remember you know, the, the craze to get the Pac-Man port, which was part of the crash of, uh, you know, but that game came out and they made so many of them and it was such a bad port, but we, we rushed out, uh, to get it. And my dad and I, like, I guess this shows what a bad port it was. My dad and I figured out a pattern that you could move around without reading a book or a guide or anything. We just over time deduced that if you moved around the screen in a certain way, the ghost would never get you. That's so disappointing. You, could, you could just turn Pac-Man into sort of an infinite runner uh, <laughs> until they moved faster and faster and finally and finally got you. But uh, but yeah, it was it was Atari and then and then Nintendo. And we didn't have quite as many Nintendo games. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised. Then NES came out in '85. I would have been 10. I we probably didn't have it that year because we just weren't the kind of family that we weren't early adopters or the kind of family that got things right when they came out. Well, um, I mean, we, actually, I'm, I'm interested in this because you, you said uh, you're using the term we a lot. So if you were quite young when the Atari came out, like who who was that for? Was was that a gift for you? Was it, have you got like brothers and sisters or did your parents sort of love it as well? Yeah, I have, an, I, have a, I have an older brother who's two years older than me. I have a younger sister who's two years younger than me. And then I have a sister who is 14 years younger than me. Okay. Uh, so she wasn't around then. She she was our Nintendo 64 child. She right, was okay. The, she was the reason we had an N64 and that I got to play, you know, Mario 64 and, and, and uh, games like that. But um, did your parents love it, though? Like, were they buying it for the, themselves as much as the kids? Or were they just like, oh, this is a toy. The kids are like this. Well, I think I, I don't I do not think it was specifically for me. It was either for my brother or more likely it was sort of a gift that Santa Claus brought for the family. Yeah. Like you, you get know? a board game at Christmas or something that everyone yeah, can play. That this was for everyone. Um, but my dad was definitely into the Atari. Now, was he into it because I was into it or was he into it because it was a thing he would have been in his um, – late twenties and early thirties, uh, at that, at that time. And, um, you know, and I think if you read the coverage of, of that era of video games in the, in the New York times and elsewhere, video games were regarded as a much something that was for adolescents and for sort of like 20 something people, especially the arcade era, but even into through the Atari era until up until the crash of 1983, Video games are taken really seriously by the American press. They're talked about as some as something that's permanent, that's here to stay, that's changing our culture, that maybe is going to that's going to do all these amazing things. And then and then, you know, and then it's the crash that makes people think it's a fad. And then it's Nintendo that makes people think they're for children. That's fascinating. I've never heard that before. I didn't realize that it was so. Like I would, I mean, this is probably, well, it definitely is an assumption on my part, but that the arcade was kind of the the extension of uh, of like the, the jukebox or the pinball machine. You know, it's, it's a place, as you said, like it's where, where adolescents kind of gather in the local shop or cafe or something. Yes, and it's, but so the first instance of, that I could find at least, of the arcade 
in the Times was a story in 1976 about what these things are. And it does. It compares them to the jukebox. It's sort of trying to figure out what is this new form of coin-operated entertainment? To what extent is it similar to pinball? To what extent is it similar to um, you know, coin-operated amusements that you find at a carnival? And uh, of a sort of mechanical variety. And then to to what extent is it like a jukebox? All of which are things that sure are for adolescents, but are also things that are for adults. Absolutely, yeah. Because they're at bars. Uh, And it was, you know, Pong comes out as as bar entertainment, right? And so, um, and then when it comes into the house, just the, the, um, for a variety of reasons, just the, the, it, it begins being described as for an audience that is progressively younger, you know, <laughs> younger and younger and younger until ultimately it's, you know, it goes from like eight to 18 year olds to eight to 15 year olds. Um, and some of that is marketing. And I think some of that just ends up being, you know, who, who was most delighted by these things. Yeah. I mean, did you, did you think, do you think you felt that, you know, as a kid who'd spent a lot of time with the Atari and then to see it crash and then to get the Nintendo, when the Nintendo came, did you, like you're a bit older, but did you feel so? It was still kind of aimed at you. But would, do you think you started to take them not take them less seriously, but maybe perhaps your parents would have though. They would be like, oh, "This is definitely a toy this time." Yeah, I don't know that I ever took video games seriously until I started <laughs> until I started writing about them. Um, uh, and even my early writing, I think if you looked at it, you'd say, "I don't know if this guy takes video games seriously." Uh, and may, and that's not bad. But I I remember being. A graduate student at the University of Missouri, where I went to journalism school, and taking a seminar on Marshall McLuhan, and which was a terrific seminar, um, and and one of the assigned readings was uh, some kind of journal article by someone on on Mist that would have come out. And so, you know, if I had been the kind of person that had read. The New York Times when I was, um, you know, if I had happened to see this article that uh, Ed Rothstein wrote in the arts and leisure section of the New York Times uh, about mist in which it says he writes a new art form arises from the from the mist. And and it's a great story about what is this thing? How does it work? How does it compare to movies? But I didn't see that story. I never read it. And so this journal article about mist and about the promise of the CD-ROM as a new art form was the first, literally the first time in my life I ever thought about games as something other than just just something I enjoyed. That yeah. I, you know, I I would have thought about who made my games as much as who I thought about like made my action figures. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, but but did you have um, like relationships around games? As in, like, would you have formed kind of friendship groups and stuff around specific games like was it akin to like more like a a sport or something you do like literally playing a game with your friends yeah i mean yes and no i mean i definitely was more into video games than basically anyone i knew um i would go to friends houses i I, often my experience (laughs) was we didn't have a really great computer um in fact one of my one of my sad trombone stories from childhood is my dad brought home this this old IBM PC one sometime I must've been in either junior high or early high school and which I was, so I've been 13, 14, 15, something like that. And it was an outdated machine when he got it home. It, It was like something that was like cast off at his office and he brought it home and it ran on, it ran DOS. It had a, you know, green monochrome monitor, but 
I was dumb enough to think, oh, this will be able to run these PC games that I've been like long, <laughs> longingly running my fingers over at the bookstore and, and other places. And so we, we picked up a video game called The Hobbit, a uh, computer game, and brought it home and put in the, the, the big floppy disks into it. And it just sort of whirred endlessly and did nothing. And then we brought it back and we said to the guy, you know, hey, this doesn't work. And he was like, and told him what kind of machine we had. And he was like, oh, yeah, there's no way that would run this game. <laughs> this game so i would go to friends <laughs> houses who had better computers and i'd be like oh can we play you know on play on your on your you know maybe they had an apple IIe maybe they had a commodore 64 maybe they had an amiga maybe they had something else and i'd be like oh can we play parsec on your commodore 64 oh can we play this star trek game you have and it'd always be like no 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 because that's the kind of thing they wanted to do when i wasn't around they could do that of course right? yeah of course <laughs> so um this is a painfully true like, i had the exact <laughs> same experience um because I, I didn't even have a, a computer and i would go to friends houses and, and they were nice people but i was going there because i wanted to play day of the tentacle uh, <laughs> and we would just sit and play day of the tentacle all day because that was the only time i ever had access to them until like years later um, but I did have friends. I have a strong memory of um, playing RC Pro-Am on a Nintendo Entertainment System uh, when I was in junior high at a friend's house. I must have been spending the night with him. Um, and so there were a lot of games. We would go rent them at the local video store. And so, um, you know, games were whatever. They were the same price they are now, 50 or 40, yeah, no, 50, crazy. $60. So back then that would be whatever, $100, you know. And so in inflation-adjusted dollars – and maybe more. So you just didn't own that many of them. And um, I had five or six of them. I had Super Mario Brothers, uh, which came with the system. I had The Legend of Zelda. I had um, Super Mario Brothers 2, which my mother like famously hunted down and bought, like got off as it was being unloaded off the back of the truck at like <laughs> Toys R Us or something like that. She was like, you're so lucky you got this. So, uh, and then... Um, you know, a few others, Tech Mobile, which is a, an NFL game, a national American football game that I really liked. Um, I'm sure I had a couple others, but that was about it. And what I, what we do is go rent them at the video store and play them over, over the weekend uh, and then and then return them. And so I remember doing that. And I, you know, my brother kind of liked them, but not really. I remember playing a lot of Atari with my brother, playing a lot of Combat, which was a local multiplayer game mm -hmm. uh, of tank and jet battles. Um my sister has these resentful memories of us not allowing her to play. I don't remember <laughs> it that way, but maybe that's true. I don't know. But she just she gave her the spare controller and said, yeah, you're controlling the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, I do remember my brother and I watching an actual football game on television and holding Atari joysticks in our hands <laughs> and pretending to control the action, you know, as it was going on. Uh, and and so um, it's, there's definitely a true that a, a way that sports were a big thing in my family, um, and sp sports were a, a gateway drug to to video games for me in a lot of ways. So I take it when you went to university, did you like did you take away any consoles with you, or, were you, or did you kind of stop playing by then? Yeah, I'm of the age that we put video games away for a little bit. Um, no, I, th I think a lot of people still do that now when you, when you hit kind of 16, 17. I certainly did. Yeah, so I definitely think I was playing them a lot through, yeah, my, to, in the, till I was 14, 15, 16. And then I think sometime around that 16, 17 age, if I was playing them, I was doing so furtively and not telling anyone um, about it. Um, 
Oh, it's I like also reading own... comics and things at that age. <laughs> yeah, I all yeah, or reading science fiction, yep. fantasy novels. Um, I definitely, you know, I I also had Metroid. By the way, I left that out earlier. But the um, when we went to college, there was a definite moment. My freshman year, I mean, I had a roommate who had a. It would have been a very old Apple IIe at this point. But my roommate in college had an Apple IIe. Uh, that would have been 1989. So it would have been a really old. Uh, Apple IIe, but he played Gettysburg, uh, a game in which you um, sort of can, I, I don't know if you can only play as the South, but he would always, we were in the South at Tulane in New Orleans, and he would always play as the South as Robert E. Lee trying to win you know, <laughs> the Battle of Gettysburg against against the North, against the Union North. Um, and then I had, there were other people down, a, a guy across the hall who had a computer, There was a, but there was really a guy down at the end of the hall who had, I think, think a Sega Genesis and he started organizing um, like NHL hockey leagues and Joe Montana football leagues. Uh, And that's that's the university dreams right there. That's right. right. And it didn't really go that far. But by our sophomore year, we sort of all looked at each other and we all kind of were like, wait, we all want to play video games. Why aren't we playing them? And one of our roommates brought the Nintendo back from his house and in NES and set up a super tech mobile league for That's us that amazing. we all played in. Somebody else brought a Genesis from their house and we had a Madden, like it was like a Madden 95 league going on. And those are great memories that I have that are as sort of like I have chills right now thinking about it. Like those are as heartwarming as any of my, you know, a uh, friend, you know, uh, sort of going to a bar or late night talks or anything, Absolutely. you know, and w- that was a really bad semester for me <laughs> grade, grade wise, because we would be, we were horrible to each other. You'd be studying for finals and somebody be, because you couldn't skip a game on Madden 95. So if your game was up in the season we were doing, no one could play until you played. <laughs> And so people would, you'd be, have a final the next day and somebody would say, oh, come on, take a break. It's only 45 minutes. You know, but of course you need that 45 minutes to prepare for your, <laughs> for your exam. And so. Well, you've um, done fine and the memories are clearly worth it. So. Yes. You know, it was, it was great. And um, so, yeah, I definitely remember that. I remember we went and rented a Sony a couple years later. We rented a PlayStation, the first PlayStation. Uh, so did and, that come out while you're in university? Yeah, that would have come out my senior year, or if it came out my junior year, we did we rented it my senior year because I remember this, and we rented um, the the new Madden NFL, which was one of the most it it would have been, oh gosh, I don't know the Madden '97 probably, and it had this very ornate and highly produced introduction that looked like the the National Football League had just moved to a new television network, the Fox television network, which you've probably heard of. Yes. And it um, you know, had new music and new announcers and and uh, and it and it had a picture of the Superdome, which was a dome stadium in New Orleans where we lived, where our really bad college football team played <laughs> in a totally empty environment, which is sort of amazing. And um, I remember watching that and we were all sort of just totally uh, uh, amazed by it. So, so yeah, you, I, you would think a video game critic would tell you, oh yeah, I played Mule and I played Day of the Tentacle, you know, and I just love Full Throttle. Um, but that just, that just, <laughs> that just wasn't me. Well, what I'm interested in actually is, you know, you, you say that, um, you know, sports was a big part of your, your life growing up. And if I've learned anything from American television, it's that, uh, people in the South love American football, um, with all their hearts. 
So I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that you weren't uh, a player in any, any fashion. No, I mean, I played baseball and basketball up through my, until I was, till I got to high school. I went to an all boys Jesuit Roman Catholic high school in, on the state line of Kansas City in between Missouri and Kansas. And um, it was just too competitive for me to play. I thought I was pretty good at basketball. And maybe if I'd gone to a slightly smaller uh, high school, I could have played maybe my freshman year or my sophomore year or something. But I, I was not good enough uh, to play. In fact, I have a story. I'm, you know, I was reasonably tall as a 14-year-old. I was six foot two. That's uh, pretty tall. That's taller than me now. I basically am still six foot two. I did all my growing before the start of high school. So I remember you would meet. I, would, I remember there would be you know friends of mine who would be a foot shorter than me when we entered high school and we'd be the same height right, four years later <laughs> when we when we left. But anyway, the point of the story is I would Kansas has a big basketball tradition and I went to a basketball camp in at in at the University of Kansas and I I played well enough to get to play ahead a year. I was gonna play in the higher group and I was like, oh yeah, I'm good. And then the then the guy started calling me little man. The coach called me little man and wanted me to play point guard. Well, I never, that's the guy who dribbles a lot and passes the ball and is supposed to be quick and agile and I'm sort of slow and clumsy. <laughs> and so um, that's when I realized I'm not good enough to play a, a, this game, you know. Uh, but I definitely, pl- I played a lot of Atari basketball, which is a really bad sort of one-on-one. Um, well, this, uh, is, this, is my, uh, this is my point. Like, so, you know, w- with this sort of like, you know, fervent love of the game, like, did you ever have any... Uh, moments when you're playing in these kind of uh, Madden tournaments in university that that were equivalent to like you know throwing that last minute uh, last minute touchdown <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, so in that Madden '95 league we had when I was 19 or 20, everyone we were all from different parts of the country at this university, so everybody had their own team, and that was part of what made it so competitive and and also personal, like I would play as my Kansas City Chiefs and I would put my other friend would be his Pittsburgh Steelers and the New, their New Orleans Saints and your Houston Oilers and New York Giants and Minnesota Vikings, all these people from all these different cities in this one eight-person eight suite. And so there was a, a, um, a, a really triumphant uh, AFC championship game between the Chief, my Chiefs and the Steelers from <laughs> Pittsburgh, another friend. And we had, you know, this is a way that like these games played. They didn't play like real football. And so there were three consecutive Hail Marys, which are full length, you know, full 80 yard passes through the air, uh, you know, bang, bang, bang in the course of a 90 seconds of play. Uh, <laughs> during an AFC championship game to get to the Super Bowl. Uh, and that was just such a huge triumph. And I emailed a, uh, when I was writing a story about it, I emailed a friend of mine and, and I said, do you, it was actually a, it was a story for the times I wrote an essay in which I was talking about how these virtual experiences are not, people think of them as unreal, but they're not, they're as real as anything oh, of else. Of course. You, yeah, absolutely. You do. Uh, and I said to him, I said, do you do you remember that? He said, God, I remember that as well as I do losing a Little League game. <laughs> you know, this one particular painful Little League game. And I was in such a sort of thrill of victory. I, I should have waited a while, insisted on waiting a while to um, to play the Super Bowl. But the guy wanted to play right then. And, and I was just on such a sort of contact high from winning that that game that I, 
yeah, I, I was just happy to be there, right? As they say, <laughs> athletes, I lost, we lost, I lost. Uh, and that's what I remember about it. So yeah, no, I, um, these days I want more than competition and thrills from games, but I do still in, enjoy those things. And there was definitely a streak of that in, in playing. I was always a pretty good video game player. Um, and, and I'm, I'm sure that's part of why I enjoyed it. Oh, absolutely. Like those kind of, uh, especially around that sort of age, because it is, you know, it's, it's a bonding thing. You know, you see it with with, with sports teams in university. You know, the, these uh, men and women go off and, you know, for their entire lives, they're linked. And as, as trivial as it seems to be like, well, we had a sort of a tech mobile tournament. The, the, the memories and the feelings can, can be just <laughs> as strong. Like, absolutely, they can. Yeah, no, I would always play as the Chiefs in Tecmo Bowl, and they had this running back, Christian Okoye, who was big and strong and powerful. And see, look, you remember all these details. (laughs) But he would fumble all the time. Uh, Yeah, no, I remember all these details. Like, yeah, and those are, um, as as Warren Spencer, the, you know, the designer of Deus Ex, who's now working on, what's he working on? System Shock 3, right? He's come back into... Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, he just started, he, he just joined this studio called Other Side is to start making System Shock 3 um, in a talk at, about narrative in video games that he gave at the Game Developers Conference one year. He said, you know, the player, the player-directed story is, is extremely meaningful to the player and extremely boring to everyone else. <laughs> that, that is a fair point. Um, <laughs> so when you, you, it was while at university you saw this, um, this journal on Mist, and so your opinion of games changed. So after, after leaving university, did... Did your relationship with games change? Did you start to like seek out games like Mist, or were you still just you know playing for fun while you went off and did your your real job, so to speak? I mean, I was still having that experience where I was bought, you know, I was getting a computer and trying to get it to play games, but it you know just was not um, <laughs> equipped to play the best you know computer games. Um, and I I remember in college like seeing watching my I had a friend. I remember watching him play Mist for a little bit and him sort of explaining to me what it was. I remember watching him play Doom and have him sort of explaining to me what it was. Oh, look, you can get a shotgun and you can do this. And I was like, wow, this is cool. I wish I could do this. He didn't let you uh, play. But no, I, I should have insisted on playing, right? Like in retrospect. But it was just You're like painting a, if that's a very sad image of like, look at this. You, you're your sister home, all over I'm again. At, I'm at home trying to make the original, the original uh, Sim City run on my <laughs> neck 386. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, even after that, I still, so I played a little bit. Um, I had a original PlayStation, uh, and I would go buy sort of old games. I mean, I was basically broke at this point, right? Like I just graduated from college. I'm saddled with student debt. I'm Mm -hmm. an editorial assistant. Um, I, you know, I, my, I live paycheck to paycheck. I, I, I pay my rent and, and have enough money to like go drink and eat and do do the things that a 25 year old man wants to do. And I also had a long distance relationship with my girlfriend who's now my wife at that time. And so whatever extra money I had was used to like fly to see her or take her out when she would come see me. But I would go by like, you know, I'd see that people said Gran Turismo 2 was good or Metal Gear Solid 2 was good or Metal Gear Solid was good. And so when they were 10 bucks or something, I would get them. And then what really happened was Jen, who who was then my girlfriend, is now my wife, bought me an Xbox for Christmas. 
That's a good and gift. As, as a good gift. And, and so she must have known, like it must have been evident that I liked these things and wanted this thing, right? And um, I worked for Microsoft, as I said earlier, for Slate. And so I was a Microsoft employee. And so you could go to the Microsoft store and buy any video game that Microsoft made that was a first-party title for $10. So oh, I bought Halo good. for $10. So I bought Mechasalt for $10, you know. And then that – and so I have a great memory of, of playing Connect – my of playing a, a Xbox Live game of Mechasalt with some, a friend from college uh, and his friends. And it was just – it's just sort of, you know – team-based mech, uh, you know, individual deathmatch yeah. mech battle. Uh, but that was my first real experience with that kind of play. Uh, like in online, basically. Online connected environment. Um, I ended up playing Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic uh, on the Xbox. Um, uh, and those games really um, were, uh, those were sort of early, especially Knights of the Old Republic was, I think, an early indicator of, oh, wait, this is the third best fictional Star Wars experience. This is pre Force Awakens, obviously, yes. but but uh, and this is arguably still, but okay, arguably still. <laughs> I, I played that game twice, right? I played it once, making all the evil choices, and it was a really, really difficult thing to do uh, because you have to make really evil choices <laughs> to go through. Like, I don't know if you've done it, but you have to end up like killing some of the allies that are yours through the game no, uh, this has come up on the show before like i i, I find it uh funny enough i'm actually i'm speaking to uh, some actors this week so i'm going to do a show about uh actors and their relationship with the games and uh, for any sort of role-playing game i find it extraordinarily difficult to to be bad like i really really feel i i can't it's i can't see it as a game where i'm just pushing at the limits and seeing what happens i, I really I, I don't know why i really feel those choices so i've never done that i've never been like bad in a game even just to see what happens yeah i think i think there's definitely games and you know for all i know ninth door public may be one of them but there are games where the choice to be good or bad is really there not to confront you with a difficult dilemma but just so you can pat yourself on the back for making the good choice. And you Maybe see I just at, like the, the back pats. Yeah, and you see that in the, in the stats, I think, sometimes. In a, a game with sort of like poorly designed choices, you'll see everyone's choosing the good choice. And it, it's just there to make, them, to, to, to make you feel like you're heroic. Or that's what I think. And, and I'm not saying I haven't played those games or enjoyed those games, but games with, with, with well-designed choices, I think, have a more even split and have a a more sophisticated, you know, continuum than just good and bad. Yeah, right? yeah. Although it can be fun to play bad. I played one of the one of the infamous games as an evil player. It was I wrote a piece about it for maybe Kotaku. I don't I mean, no, maybe it was for the New York Times. I don't I don't remember anymore, but I wrote it for somebody. I think it was the Times. And about like, you know, how I why it was worthwhile to to take the the evil path less trodden but it's not easy and it's interesting that that players um respond to the morality of these worlds you know even though they're obviously fictional and as you i think it is definitely true that people will often on the second playthrough say okay well i want to see what happened it was one of the reasons life is strange was interesting because it allowed you to see all the choices Mm -hmm. and then and to see the entire sort of narrative possibility space in front of you without having to go through the sort of 
drudgery of having to play the whole game again. I mean, I, I think that that that, there's, that is certainly a part of it. There is a, a certain amount of kind of um, loss aversion where you're like, well, if I do good, this is probably the correct way, and I'd rather <laughs> see all the good stuff than all the bad stuff kind of thing. Yeah, and then I'd say the 360 uh, really, like the Xbox 360 um, um, and and the banner year of sort of like 2007 maybe it was, mm-hmm. when we had Bioshock and Portal and all those games. And I know it's a cliche to say that those games um, really uh, changed the way I think about video games, but they really did. Um, and And in some ways I'm sad that the 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 sort of people's opinions of Bioshock has has gone down because that the game is really really remarkable. Oh no, it's, I, I think it stands up. I didn't realize that it had taken. Is it know, kind of is it fallen out of favor a little? There's a there's a corner. Yeah, there's a corner of the critical internet that I follow on Twitter in which in which uh, that game has fallen out of favor. And look, I think it's definitely true that the final third doesn't live up to the first two thirds, and the and the and the boss fight is is uh is not is, is like a misstep but like nothing's perfect and uh, but that game really really um changed not just the way i think about video games but i think the way an entire um group of people think about video games and and it introduced you know book critics and others to say hey maybe there is something and there's just every once in a while there's these moments where the culture looks at video games and says oh maybe there's something we should pay attention to here not only are these things really popular but they're capable of 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 doing genuinely interesting things and yeah absolutely. i mean i i think that the, the the capability is is the big part of that because not to say that there, there there hasn't been games like that explored things like bioshock i mean there's been hundreds like previous to that but that's right none of them would get unless you are really following um the video game culture you wouldn't be aware of them they wouldn't be that high profile like you know even like stuff like chris crawford's like early games like like gossip and balance of power and really exploring and obviously civilization things but there are a lot of games where a lot of probably the most popular games where you wouldn't a book critic for instance wouldn't be able to necessarily pull apart the the meanings behind it because there probably weren't any it was a game yeah i mean you know game Video games are a are a medium of communication, and which means they are as expansive and full of possibility as moving pictures or text Absolutely, or yeah. audio. And so they can do everything from, you know, uh, in, just be an instruction manual to be an advertisement to be a uh, sort of diverting. Uh, fun experience to be um, a, a persuasive, uh, polemical, political argument uh, to to being you know a uh, sophisticated art form, and and it's it, for some reason it's really hard for people who don't think about video games very much to wrap their head around this right that games are games, uh, and maybe it's the word games, but some games are games and some games aren't games. <laughs> And I yeah, think that's absolutely. Okay. And I think that's okay too. Um, but definitely, yeah. After that sort of awakening, I, I sort of have just sort of continually tried to sort of continue my education to go back and play, you know, Fumito Ueda's games, to play Eco and Shadow of the Colossus, to play, um, to play games I missed that are 
important and meaningful. Um, and, um, you know, and, but there's just so many games. You just can't, no, it's can't impossible. play them all. And they're so time consuming. Um, but the, but the way you were, the way you were talking about that, that, that then, and like going back and discovering this, I'm assuming, even though that you, you're like working as a writer by this point, I assume, um, had you had a relationship with like video games writing in the past? Had you, had you like read magazines? I, I assume not if you were still kind of discovering things, but. Yeah, you know, I never, ever, ever read enthusiast video game magazines. I never read. Why do you think that is? Because obviously, if you like games, you like writing. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I I definitely read Nintendo Power back in the day. Um, although I think we you got it for free or something like that. And then once you had to pay for it, my mom just refused to pay for it. <laughs> and so I, so maybe I would read it longingly uh, at a friend's house, or I would. You know, see that they published like an entire map of of of, of the first Zelda, or something. Um, I don't know why that is. I definitely read the reviews that were in the New York Times um, and the Washington Post less so uh, when I lived in Washington. But I would read. Um, I'm sure I saw some of J.C. Hertz's reviews, but really, when I moved to Washington, would have been. January late 99 early 2000 so she would have just left and a guy named Charles Harold would have taken over so I read a lot of Charles Harold's reviews in the times and I'm not really even sure how I decided to play what I was going to play like I would maybe hear what people said or I mean this is funny there's a friend of mine who who used to be my editor at Slate who now works for the Gates Foundation and he plays games but doesn't really read anything. And I asked him once, I said, well, how, this was before I started writing for the times. And I said, well, how do you find out like what you should play? He's like, well, I read, you know, I read what's in the times. I read what you write and that's it. (laughs) You know, And I was like, that's insane. Like even then I knew like, um, I would say in the 2000, early 2000s, I was like, Looking around, I would go to One Up, and I would go to IGN, and I would go to GameSpot. Like uh, once, once the web came about, I was definitely reading reviews on the internet, but I never engaged with print video game culture. Probably because around that, that would have been in the time when video games were a pretty small, you know, an important but a, but a piece. I wasn't playing the newest stuff. Yeah, I was playing. I was playing Super Tecmo Bowl in my dorm room, right? And so, um, you know, I would hear about whatever the you know, like Ma- the new Maxis game, the new Will Wright game was always a big thing, and I would hear about them, or the new Sid Meier game, and I would sort of know about them in the way that that you would just know about Gears of War or whatever. But um, but I wasn't reading criticism of them. I think I didn't even consider that such a thing might exist. Like I said, I, I thought of it like, like, like I would go read criticism of, 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 you know, um, the new He-Man character with battle action armor. Like it's just not, not the kind of thing. I, I you mean, could definitely I, do that today though. There'll be at least <laughs> 10 or 20 YouTube videos of it. Yeah. Unboxings. <laughs> oh, like, absolutely. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, and it's not that I didn't think it was important. It's just that I didn't. It just didn't occur to me. That's fascinating. Um, okay, so like you're in, uh, you you moved to Washington. This is my. This was my main concern about this whole podcast that it was. I w- it was going to you know, 
reveal myself as a total <laughs> a total ludite moron on all these subjects but anyway go ahead no that's this this is why it's interesting um <laughs> you're not a ludite moron it's fine <laughs> so you, you moved to washington to cover the the presidential race and the the political world like yes i i, I i'm not quite sure even how to phrase the question but like was there any crossover in the games that you played and this kind of political world you were looking at like or was it kind of a regression back to um i'll just play these on my own and not like would you talk to games talk about games with anyone not really back then i mean my uh i think definitely my interest in bioshock and my affection for bioshock um relates to the fact that i was a political economy major in college and a history major in college um the fact that i've always been interested in argument in in the structure of societies and reading political philosophy and all those you know that those are things that i'm really interested in and um and so the fact that bioshock is also interested in those questions while also allowing you to shoot lightning out of your fingertips and zombies it seems like a pretty good like that's that's like the that's how to get kids engaged in history. That's the platonic ideal of yeah. combining <laughs> my interest in video games and my interest in in politics. Um, I really um, – and so I definitely was interested in like the political potential for games. I remember in 96 or so when Netscape Navigator came out and like wandering through the computer lab at my college and going on and, and surfing the web and looking at sort of some of these – attempts at early large scale political games. I didn't play any of them, but I remember like seeing them and being like, what are these things? And what's the potential for this interconnected universe of people to play games? I played fantasy football online and that would have been, you know, in some sense, that's a video game. I was signing up online, oh, yeah. uh, to, you know, and playing with strangers and competing, you know, and assembling a portfolio of players uh, yeah. And then, I don't know, I, I guess I grew tired of it at some point, but, uh, so I mean, in terms of the politics stuff, like, so I, I, and then I, I definitely assigned Clive at the, at Slate stories about, well, um, he wrote a story, uh, for us in the early two thousands about Newgrounds, the flash video game website yeah. and about how these flash games were a new form of creative expression and how people were making video games about 9-11 and making video games about the presidential race. Um, I, and then I, I would just sort of try to squeeze games into places when I, where I, where and when I could. So, um, Ian Bogost, um, I, I helped him approach the times in the, Oh, around 2007, 2008 to try to do some sort of news games, some sort of op-ed type games. Um, I, 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 I assigned Daniel Radosh, uh, who's a writer for The Daily Show now, the Comedy Central news show, uh, to write about Halo 3 on the New York Times op-ed page, to write about Beatles rock band in the New York Times magazine. Um, and so I would just sort of – it was less something that intersected with my – uh, interest in politics and and policy and more something that just was like a continually a continual source of fascination that I would always try to persuade my colleagues to to include in our sort of coverage diet to say hey here's this big thing that's not just popular but is also really interesting and what can we do you know to to write about it I assigned a guy named Joshua Behrman 
who wrote the Wired story that became the movie Argo. Uh, I assigned him to write a story about indie games in the, oh gosh, that would have been like 2008, 2009. Yeah, or something that was like when they that. also kicked off and stuff. For the New York Times Magazine, right? So he wrote about like Jonathan Blow and Jason Rohr and Genova Chin. That whole, that whole, yeah, the, the sort of, the sort of triple A indie, right? When that yeah. emerged, what we now call triple A indie. And so, um, and I think that whole sort of Cambrian explosion of games, both from the iPhone and downloadable games on PlayStation and, micro, and Xbox um, and Flash games online, that whole ecology of, of stuff made me think of video games as a form of personal expression and not just sort of corporate expression, sort of not that, not that, I, not that I don't think something like you know, what Naughty Dog does or that any, any, for that matter, what Nintendo does isn't a form of really high mainstream commercial art. But, but, but this sort of punk rock indie stuff really did change the way I yeah. think about games. I mean, because it's, you have a potential, I mean, I think you saw this right back at the start, um, which has only recently been recaptured where you have the potential of, of having a singular point of view, making something and, and, to have the tools to make it financially viable to to do that without you know bankrupting yourself and hiring hundreds of people yeah or having to mail discs around the country yeah absolutely yeah used to do. um no i i do i, th I think that the, the whole punk rock um parallel is is perfect and it, i've spoken to this uh, about a, a lot of people so why was the reason I was, I was fishing with the the politics i was hoping for some kind of uh Frank Underwood's type figure that you may have run across <laughs> who you'd sit and talk about uh, Call of Duty with and you'd be like, oh, hang on. I thought this guy was was th thought like this about this particular topic, but clearly his taste in games says otherwise. Like or some some guy who's who still plays that Gettysburg game, but yeah, yeah, well, he plays that, for the that, that generation of people, which would be people about my age, I'm 41 and a little older, is just now coming to power in Washington, right? So there's definitely a generation of reporter who's younger than me um, who plays games, and I can see them talking to each other on on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, I'm I'm sort of at the bleeding edge. Tom Bissell and I are the same age, precisely, and we're right at the edge of like the age you have to be to really have grown up and not have thought of these as like no, totally. Hmm some nerdy thing that nerds do that computer nerds do if, even if you're four or five years older than me you you kind of think that yeah i mean fun, so, funny enough in, in in house of cards like i, I used franco as the example but that's he's he's one of the first uh, characters in in a tv or movie or anything like that where the fact that he plays video games isn't a thing it's just that's something he does and it's not commented on it's not like a quirk it's like well he does that to relax why wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, he just, he just, yeah, why wouldn't he? And, yeah, and, and it's pretty clear, I think, that that character in season three is Tom Bissell, right? Like, who else, <laughs> what, what other, you know, major writer of literary nonfiction reviews video games? And so, um, but uh, I don't think he, he didn't get to play himself the way Matt Bai, uh, an another writer I know, got to play himself in a season as a political reporter. But of course, he, was a, he wasn't just a cameo. He was a major figure. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. they did an actual actor to play that part. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, so I've heard that Ted Cruz plays video games. He's talked about this a little bit. Um, I've heard that some other politicians play 
but it's still it's still frowned upon enough by you know enough voters that they're just not willing to talk about it like that's that, there's a um except for Ted Cruz I guess uh but uh it's video games are still I know they're hugely popular um but they're they're still they're still sort of mainstream but not mainstream yeah no, right absolutely there there was a wired editor who once said to me the challenge for us, and I'm sure this has changed because this would have been maybe 10 years ago, but he said the challenge for us with games coverage is that we have a, a segment of readers who just love it, can't have enough of it, more, the more the better. And then we have a segment of readers who not, who not only are not interested in it, but actively dislike it, like they are, that are angered by the presence of it in their, in their magazine. And so, um, and I think you see that across you know, not just at a play. You see that at uh, you know in the New York Times or in the New Yorker, which does an extraordinary video game uh, coverage. Uh, but I'm sure there's a a, a percentage of reader, uh, especially given the demographic of their audience, that is just like, what is this stuff? Why is it in here? I don't care about it. It's just all you know. Either it's all. I mean, I wrote a story about GamerGate for the Times, and an, and and and. Um, an editor came back and was like, wait, what are these games you're talking about? I thought it was all, you know, this was for a different desk. This is for the opinion section. But who came back and said, wait, I thought games were just about, you know, shooting and racing. Like, <laughs> like that is still a widespread belief among people who don't, you know, who don't even read the stuff that Times has been doing for 40 years. Right. And so um, that's just that's just part of like just just keep scratching at the. Just keep scratching at the wall of the cell until the tunnel until the tunnel yeah. opens up. And you oh, I, I think it's definitely going to change. As you were saying, like a lot of the people uh, of, of your age are now getting into power. I think that's going to be a much more just common thing. Well, I got an email from a friend of mine that I knew in grad school the other day, and she said, "I walked into my uh, son's room, my 13-year-old son's room yesterday, and he was playing Journey." He says, it's the first time I've ever, that he hasn't been just shooting something. She says, so there's, if there's hope for, for the weird, uh, aspirational uh, indie, uh, even though I know that Sony funded and paid for that game, but, but for the, you know, for the sort of unusual yeah. uh, indie video game, it's that this 13-year-old in the Midwest of the United States is on his third, his third journey playthrough right now. That's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. So. I, I, I mean, I am... I am hoping it becomes more normalized purely because I would, you know, you, when it comes to like um, elections and things, there will be uh, an element of like politicians talking about or oh, their favorite songs or their favorite movies. And I would love to be able to have their favorite games as well. And just, just well, to, was... to see what they, because it says so much about somebody, you know, like famously there was um, uh David Cameron said he he loved the Smiths, and then Johnny Marr <laughs> tweeted at him saying, "No, you are not allowed to like the Smiths," <laughs> uh, which is brilliant. Well, um, there was a big cultural shift when Bill Clinton became uh, president in the United States in 1992. So during that race, he was the first baby boomer to run for the American presidency, mm -hmm. um, or at least to receive the nomination of a of one of the two major parties. And so it always it had all been the World War II generation before that, and so. And since there's, you know, the boomers are such a huge generation and they're uh, back then the, were basically running the American media and still are, 
there were these articles in which they would ask Bill Clinton, you know, who his favorite Beatle was and all these things that they were never they were never able to ask of, you know, George Bush's dad or of Ronald Reagan or these, you know, because they would have had no uh, context for yeah. that. Um, and so, yeah, I just that's what I'm, I'm I, I tried to approach all the um, presidential candidates this year because I wanted to ask them about what well, do you play games? If so, how? Why do you do wee bowling in your basement with your family? Like, surely you do, right? Yeah. And um, but almost none of them are willing to talk about it. Like, it's just too, it's just too dangerous. But they video games are not the boogeyman they were fifteen years ago either. Uh, you know, in the in the sort of post column. Although, you know, after the atrocity at Sandy Hook, Newtown, the uh, where the man killed all those children. Um, we still had another flare up of, you know, oh, what video games does this guy play? And it turned out, of course, that he plays Dance Dance Revolution. <laughs> uh, of course he does. Um, Chris, I'm going to go into some. Uh, I always say this is quick fire. It's not quick fire, but it's just. <laughs> Unfortunately, nothing with me is quick fire. No, but no, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's perfect for the form. Um, has there ever been a, a game that you've had to walk away from or there's been some sort of intervention where you're like no chris this is taking up far too much of your life now i mean i occasionally delete things from my iphone where i wonder oh is this taking up too much like i'm playing am i playing too much clash royale right now maybe um but there's never i don't think there's ever been a moment where i've really been worried like oh i i'm not you know, I'm not getting my work done. I'm not getting my my uh, stuff done. I mean, there's definitely a um, a compulsive quality to you know. I played I played the Legend of Zelda in that in the pre-internet age where you would just sort of like trade information with each other on the playground, um, and that game was so was full of so many secrets and so many weird uh, discoveries that I would do crazy things like wander around the entire space, you know, lighting every bush on fire with the candle to see if some stairs would open up. You know, I, I put a bomb on every single co corner of that map. You'd have made a killer QA tester, Chris. <laughs> Just, <laughs> but you had to do that. because No, that absolutely. Was, yeah. Urge. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I don't play that way anymore or have much interest in playing that way. Uh, anymore, but what 11 year old Chris or 12 year old Chris was that was um, I don't even know that I liked it then, but I thought maybe there's something to to find here. And one of the great things about those early Miyamoto games, both Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda, is is the way they really were games of exploration. We're just oh my god, all this there's a vine here, and I can climb into the sky, and there's clouds, and there's what um, I can go underground, I can warp ahead. Um, you know, I have that game memorized now. But um, but but uh, it was um, it just was just this mystery box. Uh, so, you know, I don't I, I would say only phone games maybe do that for me. But e but even then, um, maybe that's but so I would say I would say if there is one, I may wonder right now, am I playing too much Clash Royale right now? And the answer is <laughs> probably yes. But it, but it's still on my phone. I'm still playing it. I've not tried that yet. I've, I've heard nothing but good things. Um, it's so great. Um, I, 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 I it's question. like a mini kind of uh, MOBA, right? Kind of. Yeah, it's like it's sort of like part Hearthstone, part MOBA, right? Like so, you have because you are trying to blow up the other team's towers, 
but you also are acquiring these, I mean, they're, they're characters, but I think of them as cards that have different abilities. And then they're being dealt out to you in a somewhat random, you have a deck of maybe 10 of them that you can use. Mm-hmm. So of the, of the 25 or 30 or 35, however many uh, characters I have, I can choose a deck of 10. And then you build up points and can spend the points uh, to throw them out onto the onto the battlefield and, and fight the other team. So it's sort of like it's almost like a real time Hearthstone. Uh, you know, it combines elements of Hearthstone with, with but it's not entirely turn based. I think uh, I've got f- far uh, more than enough Hearthstone in my life currently. <laughs> so, yeah, Hearthstone is a game that I thought maybe I played too much of and stopped playing at some point uh, in 2014. That was probably the game that I played more of in 2014 than any other game. And I haven't I still play it almost yet. every day. And it's a testament that I've, I've never got bored of it. Um, the, the way they constantly reinvent it and add new cards, it's it's really just terrific, especially since a lot of the time it is quite random. Yeah, and Hearthstone had a less questionable monetization strategy than than Clash Royale. I mean, Clash Royale really, it's not begging you to spend money, but there's just a lot more sort of waiting involved. I, I When I played Hearthstone, I never felt like I had to give it money. In no, this no, game, not at all. Yeah, although maybe I've also sort of changed in my opinion of how you know at some point i stopped being such a cheapskate and being like wait why don't i want to give this game 15 dollars? it's given me you know scores of hours of pleasure maybe yeah you know. no totally like if you compare hours played to money spent like hearthstone is the best deal i've ever made in, in my life <laughs> uh it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving um this is a, a question i try and ask everybody um because you know we've talked about how you know games are simply a form of expression so you can you can use them however you want but one of the the emotions i, I feel that games uh, very very rarely elicit is laughter so if you can can you think of a game that has really made you you laugh sure i mean obviously the portal games uh, eric yes. wolpaw portal and portal 2 um are just um they're hilarious and uh uh poor i actually replayed portal last week or the week before for a story I'm working on. And it's both funny. It's not as funny as I remember it being. Uh, there, there's something funny. Because of course, none of it was a surprise to me this time. Yeah, I think, I think that's a big thing because there was this rarely do you get like a genuinely funny game and Portal was really and funny. Really funny. And it also, um, the way the game tells its story is so enigmatic and opaque. It's almost like Dark Souls where you're piecing it together on your own, you could just walk right by it. Uh, it's all in the environment. I mean, it's a little bit of, and it's in the narration. Uh, but it's, but, but the narration is less rewarding if you're not piecing these environmental clues together. Oh, why does this look like this? Oh, wait, what's this? I can go back here. What's back here? Oh, who's been scribbling on this? Wait, what? What nefarious thing is going on here? Um, and then yeah, Portal Two, which is, um, yeah, just, uh, I mean. Not just funny for a game, but genuinely hilariously funny. And the, have you seen the, uh, or maybe you've even played them, the um, Valve's VR tests, the Aperture Science Labs they have in, in VR? Um, yes, and I haven't played enough of that. I did a little bit. I did. They're the, also the... very, very funny. <laughs> I mean, they are just, re- you know, um, uh, Eric Walpaw and then Chet whose name I can't pronounce, uh, Falazek, uh, if that's not how I pronounce your name, Chet, I apologize. Um, and they're just <laughs> very funny writers. And, and, um, 
it's um, there are other games that are funny, but those to me are the are the absolute you know I mean those the Portal games are 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 the great video game comedies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly um, intentionally, at least. I find a lot of the games that I've laughed at most have been the unintentional, like, random glitches and stuff. Like, I can't get enough glitch videos on YouTube. UFC recently has been a gift that keeps on giving with the uh, the crazy glitches you can get and, and the the reaction to the people playing. It's just they're, they're wonderfully good. Yeah, no, and that, so, yeah, there's... um. Yeah, there's a different kind of humor in, you know, uh, either a glitch or even in whether it's Grand Theft Auto or something else. Yeah, yeah. Testing the limits of the of the system uh, and working in some sense in in cross purposes to to what the what the game is telling you your character is 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 doing. My first exposure to Grand Theft Auto three came at some point I was visiting a friend in New York and he had it in the early 2000s on a PlayStation 2 and and um I was totally you know entranced by it but he all he wanted to do was he was like oh well there's a story but really what I like to do is just go on a rampage you know which of course now it's you know a lot of people play but especially GTA 3 that way which is just like let's just see how long I can kill until until the army shows up and we did that for for a very long time and then I got those for the Xbox when they came out years later um, they kind of they, they 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 limit that I think and certainly in the newer ones it, it's harder it's harder to play them like that there there is like like I was saying earlier with the role playing element there's a real problem with the sort of dissonance between what you want to do and what the the story expects of you yeah there's a difference in tone in a, there's a difference in tone to the Grand Theft to Grand Theft Auto four and Grand Theft Auto five than there is to Grand Theft Auto 3 yeah. and Vice City and San Andreas, right? And the fidelity as well, I think, makes a huge difference. Like the the fact that these people react and feel like people. It, it's, 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 it's not, I mean, it's obviously not through the uncanny valley, but it's kind of further along to the point where you're like, oh, this is a bit weird. I feel a bit gross doing this. Yeah, and I think they, but they also have just made a bunch of interesting design choices to make you feel like you've um, occupied that character. Although Grand Theft Auto V, the decision to 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 sort of separate the player's personality yeah, into absolutely. different characters, um, where it says, "Okay, well, if you want to just go wild, we've provided a character to you who's basically insane, and you know you should play as him because he is crazy and he he That's would." That's an do excellent these point. Things. Yeah, no, totally. They've they've definitely addressed that in five. Um, okay, so. Uh, can you think of uh, the game that you've you've argued about the most, either because of competition or because you think it's good and somebody else thinks it's bad, and any kind of uh, fight, basically? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I think I'm about to start picking fights about Ken Levine and the Bioshock games. I saw Austin Walker recently, uh, wh- whose work I really admire, um, say in a post, I should go dig this up and find it. You know, he just has no interest in seeing any more work from Ken Levine. And I'm super interested in what Ken is up to. You know, yeah. like Ken is is working on this narrative Lego thing. Maybe it's going to be a disaster. Maybe it's going to be interesting. I don't know. Um, but um, I just think he does, you know, ambitious, impressive work. And, and, and um, I'm... Um, there was a reception of Bioshock Infinite where it came out and the sort of game press 
just adored it, right? And so this is the greatest, this is, you know, this is a model of the form. I wrote one of those reviews. I sort of, I stand by it. But then over the next, over the preceding months of that year, people started like poking at that game and saying, well, what about this? And what about that? And, you know, it doesn't live up, you know, the, the opening, the extraordinary, you know, first 90 minutes uh, are contradicted by the bullet sponge shooting that comes and the, um, it, you know, it becomes interested in these storytelling about quantum, <laughs> about quantum mechanics or something. I you loved know, about, all of that stuff. You know, yeah. And so, um, yeah, and I think there's something, this is a major Bioshock Infinite spoiler, uh, so close your ears or skip ahead, but like there's something really moving about the idea that um, these two characters are locked, are pitched in this endless battle that they repeat despite themselves over and over and over again. And of course, it also, much like the first Bioshock, is making a statement about the nature of video games and what they are and how they do and don't work. Um, and so anyway, I, I wrote in a New York Times end of year dialogue that it was my favorite game of that year, even though Grand Theft Auto V was also extraordinary in a number of other games. And somebody that I ran into later asked me about that. And I said, I said, look, I liked a lot of games this year, but I felt like Bio thought, I, I, I thought Bioshock Infinite was worth defending. Like I felt like it was getting, <laughs> I felt like it was getting like, I partly picked it because I loved it so much, but I partly picked it just because I, I thought it was getting a bad rap and someone needed to stand up for it. So, so I did. Um, I, I guess, you know, um, so I, I don't know, that wasn't like a real bitter vituperative fight. I, um, I, um, I certainly have, you know, uh, I, I try, I try not to do too much of that. I've been writing online for 16 years and the, the conversation on the, on, on the internet is, is, is not more vitriolic than it was 16 years ago. There's just more of us. Yeah, and, no, totally. And so, um, you know, um, it may be true that in the, in the quote unquote olden days, if somebody wrote you something really nasty, um, and you wrote them back, they would back down. That was true. Like 99 times out of a hundred because they, they often don't think you're a real person. They often think that you're part of some sort of crazy, empire and that you have like a they just have a totally unrealistic idea of what how the world works how journalism works how famous you are um that you're reading your email um i don't know if that's true in the social media world and i know it's worse for women because because of my name i sometimes get confused for a woman and it is worse um <laughs> you know the, 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 the mockery is worse the derision is worse um but um it's um, uh, I, it, they used to always they they still I mean there's <laughs> this is a little bit of a tangent but there there was a basketball player turned basketball announcer named Bill Walton okay and a in graduate school a friend of mine set up an elaborate prank in which he posed as another friend of ours or sort of acquaintance of mine but friend of his um, who was working at AOL or somewhere like that. So he had, um, you know, an AOL, he had, he had like some tech company email address and he, and so he went to the web form at Bill Walton's website and wrote that you put in this guy's email address and made up a job that he had. 
that he was in, you know, instead of this guy being like some sort of journalist, just what he was, he said, you know, I'm in charge of corporate training at America Online or whatever company this was. And I would, I think you are not just one of the great speakers, but, you know, uh, not one of the, just the best bat basketball analysts, but one of the great speakers in all of America. And we would love it if you would come speak to our annual seminar, you know, please, you know, be in touch with me. And so this guy gets an email to him from Bill Walton, who's this, you know, famous-ish, <laughs> you know, television personality, uh, you know, that says like, hey, thanks for writing. And of course, this guy has not written him, uh, you know, and uh, I'd love to do this. Here's my phone number. And the guy's like, oh, my God. And he, and he turns to his friend. Of course, his friend was like, well, I thought this was just going into some like Dropbox in the Bill Walton <laughs> Empire didn't know like Bill Walton personally received these email emails. Bill Walton gave him his home phone number. Like we called it and it was just like, hi, you've reached Bill, you know, and that guy's like Bill Walton is 10,000 times more famous than some Internet writer or print writer on on video games. Um, and I just it's just easy to forget that these are real people, uh, you know, just doing their job. And it's yeah. sometimes if you just remind them of that. Um, we can we can have a conversation, though not all the time. Not all the time, no. And if, if anything, I would say that social media has probably made that that worse um, because of the sheer volume of, of things people get. So when people do respond, you're like, like I've seen a lot um, of celebrities, especially like writers, like TV and film writers that, that I follow, that they will get like vitriol from people about how they didn't like a certain story or character points or something. And then when the person responds, their immediate response is, oh, my God, you're responding to me. What a loser. And it's like, yeah. well, that, that's, that's bad in every direction. You know, it's a and, shame. And part, and part of the challenge with social media is that you have this persistent identity where it's always you. And so when the clown car – when you know you're going to, like, do something that the clown car is going to back up and unload, like the – this is a mixed metaphor, but then the, the sort of barbarian horde of users is going to – like that – that it's phenomenon, a terrifying image. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that that phenomenon has existed for as long as I've been writing online. When I wrote for Slate, our stuff would get sometimes featured on MSN.com, which back then was the homepage for people who didn't know how to change their homepage on when they used Internet Explorer on their Windows, yeah. you know, X, XP machine or whatever it was, and. Um, uh, and if you just knew that if your column got put on MSN.com, you were going to get thousands of emails. And so, you know, and so eventually we ended up having, as everyone does now, not everyone, but, you know, a, another email address that would go on those articles. So you would I would read them all because occasionally I would run into someone I knew or somebody who had entered. But like, you know, 99 percent of them were just weird hate mail. Um, that was true at Yahoo when I worked at Yahoo. Um, the problem on Twitter is that um, there's no way to sort of like separate out your identity. And, um, and I, I can't, it's unsolvable to me. But I do think there's been a sort of coarsening of the, of the discourse. And I don't know what, if anything, to do about it other than to just sort of like, like I said, just, just keep scratching against the jail cell yeah, wall. Yeah, it's a new, a new uh, social media. I'd be, I'd be quite keen on someone inventing. There seems to be a new one every couple of years for a while. <laughs> And just then we've we just need, stuck a new, a new social network. Just what we. I, no, I genuinely think that'd be quite exciting. Just like a brand new thing, like a, a replacement to Facebook or Twitter. I think that'd be great. I, I don't well, think it's ever going to get any traction now. I think it's too solidified. But 
It might. You know, every, every once in a while on the internet, everybody just gets bored with what they're doing. Yeah. And we're in one of those moments right now where Twitter seems, Twitter seems boring to us, but it also seems irreplaceable. And, and obviously we're a minority because most people don't use it, right? Absolutely. Or, um, but for the people who use it, they're both bored of it, and, but they also sort of feel like they're entrapped by it. Um, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like we, the internet goes through these cycles and, and always something new shows up. I remember being bored with the internet. I remember a colleague of mine at Slate coming into my office and saying, do you remember when you used to be excited to surf the internet and go find a new site and there would just be, or someone would email you, hey, have you seen this thing? And of course, for a while it was stupid things. Here's a, a video of a coffee mug in China or whatever, you know, but um, um, YouTube came along not long after that and was like, oh, here's something new to play with. And so we'll get something new to play with. I just, I just, I'm not going to invent it. <laughs> well, you, you've offered me uh, a, a beautiful um, seg there because uh, what about, like, are, are you as excited about games as you ever have been and are you excited about the future and like what sort of things are you playing now that that excites you you know i just played about this is this is going to make me sound terrible i just played 20 minutes of the new doom which mm -hmm. is so fast and so exciting and so like um thrilling that i was like i want to play more of this it's not the kind of game i normally am into but I found it totally thrilling and, and really eager to play more. I mean, I think this is the most exciting time to be a video game player. Um, I think that I have a sort of Ecclesiastes temperament, like vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, but um, and I think that happens when you when you turn 40, like you start to read articles. You're like, oh, I've read this before. I've seen this before. <laughs> um, but uh so, you know, I'm always interested in new stuff, but like, I don't know, games are, I mean, we're about to enter a sort of, the sort of desert of the summer <laughs> for video games, but they'll be, they'll be fun. Interesting. They'll still be far too much to play. They'll still be far too much to play. Um, I mean, I started writing about games because they, I thought they were the most interesting, most exciting, most vibrant, creative form that we have. I thought they were important. I think they are important. I think they deserve more from us as a culture and as a player. I think that they, you know, yes, they can be fun uh, diversions, a fun way to just bring joy into some someone's, you know, otherwise tedious life. That's that's not nothing. No, uh, no, not so, at all. Uh, and so, um, and I think that's an important um, function uh, or uh, function is an awful word to use, but it's an important you know, that's important. Um, but they can be more and they deserve more. And I just thought I would try to try to help move that along. And, and, um, and so that's, yeah, that's why I'm still here. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think they are definitely delivering. Like, I think the, the games have never been more broad and exciting and interesting at, at every level, basically. Yeah, I think that's just definitely true. And it's one of the interesting things of like why why are this, we're at one of these moments where the capital C culture has decided they're going to pay less attention. Although maybe we're shifting back because New York Magazine just covered Uncharted. Rolling Stone just introduced Clixel, its new video game website. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so um, we might be we might be about to shift back into a hey, maybe there's something going on here. 
Um, I think also like I, 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 I'm not sure that a capital C culture really exists anymore because because of the internet because everything is so um, uh, atomized basically like everything is niches within niches. I, I find it hard to think what the sort of big culture is really. I mean, obviously there's where the money is, I suppose, but, uh, I guess both are true to me. It's definitely true that, you know, video games are exciting and interesting and important and vibrant without anyone paying attention to, without anyone from the capital C culture paying attention to them. And John Lanchester, the British novelist and journalist, uh, in a dialogue I was with, with him on slate once about video games. Um, he said, you know, please, Please let no one ever find these things and tame them because that's when th- that's when art forms get boring. You know, he said the, the novel was more interesting when serious people weren't reading it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. On the other hand, I'm delighted to live in a world in which The New Yorker thinks Simon Parkin deserves a regular gig. You know, I'm delighted. And um, and um, I, I want to I think it's important that top down change from from the sort of barons of culture, the, the editors of important magazines and newspapers. Um, you know, we don't have in the United States um, a newspaper like The Guardian that pays that much attention to video games. Yes, that's, that is, that is uh, well, that, yeah, no, I suppose, like, but even still, like, that, that's been quite a slow, a slow process of change. Like, it was just part of the tech site. It's only really been the last couple of years. Yeah, and so I just think that stuff matters. That stuff's important. Um, I just had it did a interview with Neil Druckmann, uh, the co-writer and co-director of Uncharted Four. Oh, amazing! Um, that is in uh, in the new Glixel newsletter, and, and they just published it on the Rolling Stone website. And I just think it's really interesting and revealing. And he was open and uh, and and forthcoming and honest, which is just like a wonderful thing to encounter as a an an interviewer. Was there and, any uh, hot takes? from that interview <laughs> there are many hot takes already circulating around the internet um, but uh, I mean he, he talks about a lot of things about sexist focus testers about things that were cut from the game about why they took fun out of their focus tests because people were rating levels that they thought were important as not fun and when they started asking people whether they liked them they would say yeah they liked them <laughs> the oh that's really up. interesting because really that's interesting. that's such a that's kind of right at the crux of, of, of what we're talking about with games and, uh, you know, are they just something for fun or are they there to tell a, a story? And the, so in the testing phase to be like, well, where do you, where does the author step in basically and say, no, 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 this, this is part of what I'm trying to express. Yeah. And so I just think though, this is though, this is a, a world of um, important, interesting people. And, you know, I like to discover weird movies and weird games and, and weird movies and TV shows and music and other things by reading magazines and newspapers and websites. And I would like to live in a world in which I didn't have to go always to specialized game sites, even though I really like a lot of those places. Um, I just want, I, I just think uh, the, the world's more interesting when there are more interesting collisions in it. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, that feels like a, a perfect ending point, Chris. But if there's anything that hasn't come up that you'd like to mention, then please take your opportunity now. Um, no, but please, uh, I, I, I just, you know, was honored to be on this podcast. Thank please, you very much. Please listen to my podcast. Shall we play a game? Shallweshow.com. Um, I was hoping to announce 
that I have a new book contract, but uh, we're still finalizing that. So uh, that was going to be my this was going to be the the launch for the <laughs> impressive PR offensive. Well, this for, probably won't come out for a couple of weeks yet. So if if you do get the the go ahead, <laughs> we can we can edit that in. <laughs> I'll let I'll let you know, but it won't be done. Uh, you know, it'll just be a, a contract. But anyway, I, I'm I'm hoping to do that soon. Uh, to go to go sort of wrestle with that angel so that's that's what i'm hoping will happen next brilliant well thanks very much for your time chris i know you've got another call soon so i'll let you go for now but uh this was this was a treat thanks very much i really enjoyed chatting thanks for having me all right see you later bye bye long as there are stars above you you never need to doubt it so sure about it God only knows what I'd be without you without you and if you should ever leave me though life would still go on believe me show nothing to me so, so what good would living do me God only knows what I'd be without you be